What happens when two bass road warriors spend quality time talking music and life with one of their peers? Bassist educator author David C. Gross and bassist and head honcho of KnowYourBassPlayer.com, Tom Semioli, trade eights with the legends of rock, jazz, funk, blues, folk, country, and more. Notes from an artist. Revealing conversations with the legends who've created the soundtrack of our lives. What happens? You're about to find out. It's another episode of Notes from an Artist. And welcome, David, once again to another exciting episode of Notes from an Artist. I'm welcoming David personally because he is my co-host. David, say hello to our audience member. Hello, audience member. How have you been? It's been a week or so. It's been a week or so. I'm Tom Simeoli. I am David Seagross's co-host. And today, David, we have a great show, as we always have great shows. Our guests are author Mark Bego and Teresa Knox, who is the CEO of Church Studios. Church Studios being the legendary Tulsa Recording Studios founded by Leon Russell. And the occasion of our conversation, other than the fact that we just like to uh, bloviate with people, is the new book, the new Mark Bago book, Joe Cocker, with a lot of help from his friends. It is on Yorkshire Publishing. It'll be out November 16, 2023, as you hear this. And actually, they're going to be also doing a book signing at the, the church. That is on November 11th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Central Standard Time. So go meet Mark, go meet Teresa, and go meet Melanie. Melanie, the famous singer. Remember Melanie Kafka? I've got a brand new roller skate, or I've got a brand new key. What was that song, David? I like to teach the world to sing. That's the one. But there was the roller skate song, and that was a little before my time, but you know that. Great book on uh, Joe Cocker. It really fills in the gaps for people who really don't know who he was. He's kind of a forgotten rock star of the 70s, but he did have big hits all the way through to the 80s and 90s. He was always a sellout on the concert circuit. And uh, like Leon Russell, who we talk about extensively in this interview, Joe and him had parallel careers. Even though they may not have reached the commercial heights of their early years, they never stopped putting out quality music and moving forward. And David, you had the opportunity to open up for Joe Cocker. Why don't you tell us about That's that? That's right. Back in 89, I opened up for Joe. I guess it was about a half a dozen times with uh, this artist on MCA Records named Cindy Bullens. I must tell you, I went into the audience each night that we were opening and watched the band. And it was a great band. A bunch of guys from New York and England, of course. Joe was in top form. Church Studio is in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you can find out about the book signing on thechurchstudio.com. As I said, we talk extensively about the book and about Leon Russell's influence on Joe Cocker. And of course, it was Leon who put together Joe's second record, the Joe Cocker Exclamation Point. He really rescued that record. And of course, he was the driving force behind Mad Dogs and Englishmen. And we talk about that with Mark and Teresa, who give us great insight into this amazing time in the history of rock and roll. So without further fondue, let's get to Mark and Teresa. Welcome to the show. It's Mark Bego and Teresa Knox. Mark Bego has published 68 books. Oh my God. My goodness, on rock and roll, show business, performing arts, musical theater, cinema. Am I leaving anything out? Mm, I think that's it. Yeah, no, I, you I think did a book too. All right. We'll have <laughs> wasn't both. there a, a book about the... Uh, In my spare time. <laughs> that's right. Uh, wasn't wasn't there a book about the great um, Roman Empire that you did? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm still doing research on it. <laughs> I see. <laughs> yes. Reminiscent of David's childhood. I don't think 
He has had That's bestsellers true. in Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York. He's written about so many musical artists. Elton John, Elvis Presley, Madonna, you remember her, Bonnie yeah. Raitt, Tina Turner, Whitney Houston. He hasn't written about us yet, but the day is still young. And of course, the new book is about Joe Cocker with a lot of help from my friends. It's out November 16, and fabulous book. And there's also going to be a book signing at the church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which brings us to Teresa Knox, who is a... Hello, hello, Teresa. She's a returning guest. You're you're in you're in good company with Bill Wyman and Ron Carter. She is a businesswoman, an entrepreneur, a music producer, a music promoter, and you are a historic building preservationist. Nice title. Nice work if you can get it. And she's CEO of the church which is the renowned recording studio of the great Tulsa icon of rock and roll, Leon Russell. I was telling Mark it's nice to meet him. We haven't met yet, so. This is our this is our official meeting right now. Oh, yes. oh I'm watching it. You're witnessing it. Now tell me, Teresa, there's now an audio engineering school at the church. Yes, is that something new? Has that been there? It's new. We had been planning it for a while, but we just received our license um, by the Oklahoma State Department of Education. And so we're really excited about that. We have a lot of analog gear here at the church and it's kind of a lost start with everything going on in the digital world Mm. so we're excited to capture that knowledge and to share it with the new generation of audio engineers and how they can blend both analog and digital at the studio and the classroom amazing amazing and yeah i'm sure leon russell would have been very into digital and ai if he were still here and great courses the art of music production fundamentals of sound Music business foundations, that's got to be a tough subject, right? right? Studio gear, production, and everything else. But let's talk about Joe Cocker. And what a timely book, because in many ways, I think Joe Cocker is kind of the forgotten artist in the world of pop music. I mean, he was incredibly popular at Woodstock. Obviously, that's where he made his name, as you detail in the book. And then, of course, with Leon, Mad Dog's an Englishman. That was a historic touchstone. But Joe Cocker and Leon, to an extent... They didn't have the swagger of, let's say, Mick Jagger or or Bowie or Elton John in the 70s. Their concerts weren't the pomp and pageantry of, let's say, an Alice Cooper or people like that. Yet they persevered. And, and you quote in the book, uh, Mark, um, or Melanie, who said it was Joe's authenticity. Is that Was that the key to his success? I think so. He was his own worst enemy. This is one of the things I found yeah. out while researching this book. I mean, of course, I've written books that seem to fall into a pattern. We were unknown and wanted to be famous. We were famous. We became hit makers. We became rich. We had a drug problem. Now we hate the other members of our band. Now I'm in recovery. (laughs) So there is a pattern to these. (laughs) But as you mentioned, one of the peaks of Joe Cocker's career, of course, was Woodstock. And Mm. the other one was Mad Dogs and Englishmen. So after that, he became very disenchanted with the music business. And did nothing for two years, got depressed and did nothing but drink and do drugs. Well, I know that's very rock and roll, but it's a waste of two years. (laughs) So he lost a lot of his momentum. And that's one of the things, of course, that I discuss in the book. Yeah, yeah. And again, very similar career trajectory to Leon Russell. You mentioned that his idol, and you can hear it, was Ray Charles. I remember my parents when they heard me playing Joe Cocker and Leon Russell records. They said, oh, those guys are trying to sound like Ray Charles. And I love you quote Joe's dad that it sounded like um, he had a pin stuck up his arse. (laughs) (laughs) Because he loved Mario Lanza, so you couldn't get any further from Mario Lanza than his own son, Joe. Right. But you, you note in the book that he got his singing technique from opera singers because Joe Cocky always seemed his chest is blown out just like a Pavarotti. 
So he did. Absolutely. He approached the art form as an opera singer, which is probably why he never really blew out his voice despite all his substance abuse. Absolutely. Part of his charm or the charm of his voice is that raspiness that he mm. had. And he did everything he could to maintain that. <laughs> yeah, he certainly did. I mean, when you look inadvertently. You, yeah. <laughs> well, when you read about the intake of alcohol and substance abuse, it's a wonder that he even survived. I mean, he had, must have had an incredible constitution. And an amazing liver. My God. He was someone He was someone who you expected to have his liver drop out, you know, sort of <laughs> like David Crosby. Um, no. But it, it never did. And in fact, at one point, one of his producers takes him to a doctor doctor because he's passing out and vomiting blood and the doctor said well you know he's just the type of guy that can drink a ton of liquor vomit continue drinking and show no signs of of, of destroying his liver which is amazing right but his other addiction unfortunately was cigarettes yes. two packs a day since he was about 10 or 12 years old and that's what ended up getting him lung cancer yeah 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 and then of course the close connection with leon because a big player as you mentioned in the book in, in joe's career was denny cordell so, absolutely right he meets denny him through... really believed in him right well go ahead that's that's it, right? He meets uh, Danny Cordell through Chris Staten, who was also. It's interesting because Joe needed Chris as a musical director, and just as Joe needed Leon to get him through later. But yeah, Danny Cordell played a major, major role in Joe Cocker's career. Oh, absolutely. He mm -hmm. was. Tom, so why don't you let everyone know who Denny Cordell was, because our listener may oh. not know. Our one listener. Yes, he was the founder with Leon Russell of Shelter Records. He was a manager, he was a business manager and a producer. I understand he was a very charming fellow. <laughs> yeah, we hear that a lot about Denny. Uh, unfortunately, we lost uh, Dwight Twilley this past week. Right, right. And I've had, you know, I became very good friends with Dwight and so many sweet mm. stories about Denny and how he believed in them. Of course, just like with Tom Petty, Mud Crutch, mm -hmm. you know, very creative and coming up with a, a new band name. And um, I just really love that about him. And we've also interviewed and spent a lot of time with Rita Coolidge right. and Claudia Lanier. And they say the same thing, but they both absolutely adored Joe. Mm -hmm. And the stories that they have about him are, are, are amazing. Right, right. And it's interesting to learn, Mark, in this book, and I never thought it would have been, that Joe Cocker actually came up with the arrangement from With a Little Help from My Friends, which has got to be one of the, the most amazing covers of a Beatle track ever and that you teach us that or you inform us that Joe liked to sing in waltz time three four six eight exactly he came up with that and and that was his idea to sing it that way it was kind of unconventional even to the Beatles mm. and they were so impressed with him that was one of the fascinating things about mm. this is the fact that they loved the fact that he took their songs and took it to a different level or right. you know a different different type of arrangement different type of approach and in his career he did nine different Beatles songs, so he really covered a lot of their things right That's, up to the end. There are very few pop interpreters of his caliber. Where Rod Stewart did write, write a bunch of his material, there was quite a bit. Think about Atlantic Crossing and a couple of the other albums where he's uh, interpreting other writers. I think one of um, Joe's strong points was his ability to interpret You Are So Beautiful, another Jimmy Webb classic. Absolutely. You know, and, and that puts him in a category with Aretha Franklin 
Franklin. Aretha was famous for that as well. She wrote a couple of her songs, but she would take like a Dionne Warwick song and that had been a huge top 10 hit and all of a sudden it's an Aretha Franklin song. She would do yeah, that with a lot of material, Bridge Over Troubled Waters even. I mean, that was one of, one of the keys to Joe's career is to pick out great music and then do something completely unique with it. And with his voice, it always took it to a different a different plane. Right, right. Now, Denny takes Joe to A&M Records, and that's a fascinating story. Joe had never been to the United States. And of course, Cordell hooks up Joe Cocker with uh, Leon and Delaney and Bonnie, which was amazing because that was really the perfect setting for Joe to be in because they complimented his music much better than the British session guy. Who weren't too shabby either, Jimmy Page and Clem Caminetti and those guys. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it took him to a different level. And Leon's songs, his interpretation of Leon's songs, especially Delta Lady, mm. just brilliant. I mean, uh, just perfect. And and the right timing. You mentioned Bonnie and Delaney. And fortunately, they were kind of splitting up from being a touring act right. at exactly the time that Joe needed a band and a show, like with two weeks notice. And it was Leon Russell who brilliantly called everybody from Delaney and Bonnie and put together this rock and roll extravaganza that became Mad Dogs and Englishmen. It was it was perfect timing that they were all off work. I mean, that's how they ended up with three drummers on yeah. stage. It was like uh, Leon Russell had this this famous quote, like, I've got three of the top drummers signed up for this show. They came to our rescue. Which one do you want to tell can't come? So they just took all, Tick all three. Well, also, you have to think in terms of the beauty of A&M Records at that particular point in time. They were signing up all these British acts, Spooky Tooth and uh, Humble Pie. Right. So many bands out of Britain were given the opportunity of coming to America and, and recording. And oddly enough, when you think of A&M America, you think of some of the sappiest pop music of all. <laughs> Captain and Tennille, The Carpenters, oh. uh, Baha Marimba, even Herb Albert's um, Tijuana Brass. It, it's very interesting how I assume it was Jerry Moss who said, hey, we've got to hip ourselves up a little bit here. <laughs> Even to the point of getting an obscure band out of England, like um, Fairport Convention, turning them into something special. Yeah. Well, and he was obviously fascinated with the whole, everyone from Woodstock, he ended up with a great Richie Havens, a couple of albums uh, right. right after Woodstock. A&M would, would try all kinds of things, which is what fascinated me about them. Uh, when I was, I'm a big record collector. I'm, you know, it's like, I, as soon as I go to a different town, I'm like, oh, where, is there a record store, a CD store, <laughs> anything? There's so few and far between. Um, but I, I always was fascinated with the kind of music that A&M was attracted to because it was all over the map. They even had Leslie Gore in the 70s and put her back together with Quincy Jones yeah. for an album that I love. It went nowhere, but they would take risks on people. And obviously, Joe Cocker was a risk for them as well. They had to establish him in this country and they instantly did. Right. Yeah. yeah A&M, yeah. right. Cat Stevens also. I mean, it was a big. Oh, actor. Cat Stevens. Yes. <laughs> Well, one of the fascinating stories is when Leon goes to meet Joe Cocker and he's in the studio with him and Leon's a wrecking crew pro and he couldn't believe that these guys were wasting time, $3,000 sessions to sit around smoking and drinking. And Leon really comes to the rescue when he takes him to his L.A. studio 
which is just before he moved the church to uh, to Tulsa. Yeah, he was amazed to see the mess that was in the studio. They would do drugs for hours and then mm. get a couple bars of a song. And as you said, he was used to like total professional. Yeah, was, yeah. uh, he was used to Elvis Presley coming in and them doing Viva Las Vegas. You got one hour to nail this song and right. they would do it. And so to see all this waste, he was amazed. And, and unfortunately, Joe grew up wasting a ton of studio time <laughs> on absolutely nothing but getting drunk and passing out. <laughs> My goodness. It's well, amazing. Mark, it was it was really interesting for me. I was the opening act on Cocker's 89 tour. As a matter of fact, that live thing he did in Lowell was actually the band I, I was in at the time's first date with him. And what was amazing about Joe to me is, well, I, first of all, I've never sat in the audience every show, either a headline or an opening act that I've been on the road with has done. So they were really, really an amazing band. And most of them were friends of mine from New York. So it was it was an easy sell for me. But what I found most interesting was after the show. So when we go back to the hotel, there was this guy hanging around with Joe, counting how many drinks he could have. Mm-hmm. Oh, Okay, yeah, because this was from <laughs> the Michael really Lang work, era, and he was watching Joe. He was making. Oh sure. yeah, that was his yeah. job, and yeah. it was very strange for me to see something like that go on. Yet every night he went out there and he nailed it. It was really extraordinary. It's kind of unbelievable to read all these accounts of him getting drunk before the show, drinking during the show, vomiting during the show, behind the piano, continuing drinking and continuing singing and finishing the show. I mean, that's it's disgusting, but amazing at the same time. It really is. How on earth is no, so it's disgusting. Life? There's nothing amazing about it. Well, it's disgusting. Uh, it, it is disgusting. It's, it's like, oh my God. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, you'll have to bring that up in your audio engineering school. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Teresa, yes, yeah. Inspire what this not story. to do in a recording. Not to do what not to do. Oh, <laughs> Maybe you just need to have some drama, re- drama mean around the studio. And <laughs> gigs, you know? oh, my God. Well, I, I think that from my intro to the book, you realize that I tell the story. The reason I got into doing this book was that I was approached to do a screenplay about Joe's right, yeah, life. Tell me about that. Yeah. And well, what happened just to back it up a little further, I did a book with Debbie Campbell, mm-hmm. Glenn Campbell's daughter, Glenn, of course, from the wrecking crew with Leon. Right. You know, so it's kind of like two degrees of separation. The book was it was called A Life with My Father, Glenn Campbell, Debbie Campbell, written with me. And it was optioned for a movie. Movie producer bought it. And she called me last January, a year ago, January. And she said, we can't find a screenplay writer to do a treatment of this. Can you try your hand at it? I said, OK. Well, I've done one with someone. Let me try it. Well, I did. And they liked what what they saw. And they said, we're going to try and sell this. We want another screenplay from you. Do you want to do Joe Cocker or Jerry Rafferty? And I said, well, let me do a little research because I really hadn't thought of either of them as topics. So I looked into Jerry Rafferty. And of course, you know him from Baker Street. Right. Yeah. Steelers wheel. Get Steelers back, wheel, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So those were the two big big peaks. But Joe, of course, had Woodstock. He had Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Uh, They were both, both he and Jerry Rafferty, huge drinkers and huge smokers. Um, Jerry Rafferty was someone who was, I guess, a very malcontent type of person and had a very unhappy life. And I thought, who's going to want to sit through a movie for two hours about Mm -hmm. someone that unhappy? Joe Cocker, self-destructive, but he was in a great mood all the time. (laughs) He made a better subject. So I wrote the book and I, I had 
had little pieces from each era. And the producer said, you have too many scenes where he gets drunk, passes out under the piano and vomits. And then and then the producer comes in and goes, how's he going to record? And then he gets up at four in the morning and goes, let me try another run. Does a run of it, goes home and they piece the song together. It went on time and time again. Wow. I've never heard a story like this. Someone that self-destructive and, and as we've established, someone that wasteful of studio time. Yeah. Incredible, incredible. Well, listen, I would like to audition for the part of Joe Cocker. I have a beard. I could do that. <laughs> We're looking and, for someone. You never and I'm, know. I, I suggest Teresa as Rita Coolidge. I think that would be fine. I think that would make a, a, a yeah. well, maybe yeah. on Netflix. Coolidge, great. I love Rita. I've known her for years. Yeah, she's amazing. She I got the Getting back to Joe and Leon, it's interesting because when you talk about Leon doing plastic surgery on the Joe Cocker album, the one with the exclamation point, it's almost like a Leon Russell record with Joe Cocker singing on it. It has that Delaney and Bonnie, Joe Cocker, Tulsa Posse, that, that sound to it. Absolutely. I mean, it's a natural progression. And exactly. Now, this is this is something that the, the, the viewer can find out as well as I'm finding out. <laughs> when is it that the church was converted by Leon to a recording studio? What year was that? That was 72. So it was after the concert for Bangladesh. It was the spring of 72. Leon was hot, you know, just put out his fifth studio album and Carney was climbing the charts and he wanted to come back to his hometown and do something very different than what was happening in L. LA and he did it very well. And so he and Denny, uh, it was really an impulse purchase. I'm in Studio B at the studio, but there's a little restaurant across the street called the Ranch House and they were eating over there. They saw the sign and they said, let's do it. And they did it. That's amazing. That is amazing. So then he recorded there from that point on all his music or most of it. I wouldn't say all of his music. It was really more of this entrepreneurial creative workshop where different people came over. They would hang out. Wolfman Jack did Midnight Special here. Kansas, Stevie Wonder, of course, Eric Clapton, Tom Petty, Willie recorded mm-hmm. 74, 75. Um, but Leon also had a recording studio in his home. And then he also had a lake house about 45 minutes east of Tulsa. And he had a studio there as well. But this was very, a 40-track tape machine. No one had a 40-track tape machine at the time. I interviewed Roger Lynn, and he said that uh, Leon was really the inspiration behind the Lynn drum. And so, Tom, when you're referencing Leon would be in AI and everything else right now, oh, you're yes. absolutely right. It was so progressive. And he told Roger they were using like a Roland. Roger was his guitar player. They were using a Roland. It's like, oh, we got to do something better. But he was always rigging and messing and trying to get unique sounds in the studio. And I think that was the beauty of the church. He didn't want that high pressure that people were seeing in the LA studios at the time. Right, exactly. And and uh, Mark, I advise you to go check out our podcast with Teresa and Bill Janovitz, who wrote a fabulous book on Leon Russell and talks all about that. I saw part of it on YouTube yesterday. Okay. Very yeah, amazing stuff. And yes, when I saw Leon Russell, he was surrounded by synthesizers. And it sounded great. I mean, you would never expect Leon Russell, but he, he never stayed in one place. He kept progressing and kept right. progressing. And remember, too, he had cerebral palsy, right. I mean, congenitally at birth. And so it definitely contributed to his unique style. But years later, it, it became more of a disability. So it was a little bit, even yeah. Elton, he had Bernie Toppin with us a few weeks ago. Yes. And even he, you know, talked about just, you know, getting his chops back and 
his fingers because Elton definitely pushed, you know, using the acoustic piano. Yeah. Now, another of the many fascinating stories is the, the whole Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour and film. And for years, the idea was that, oh, Leon hijacked this tour. Leon, it was more about Leon. But really, Joe would have never pulled it off if it wasn't for Leon coming in and saving the day. And when I go back and listen to this record, I really hear how supportive Leon was of Joe during those concerts, that whole tour. Well, and it's suggested by several people that I've read quotes from that it was this idea that Leon was taking over the show was an idea that was planted in Joe's head and started mm. to fest. But you're absolutely right. Joe was totally ill-prepared yeah. for this tour. He had like two weeks to pull together a show. He'd fired his band, got into a big argument with them, fired his band, didn't have a cohesive show, and not one that he could, you know, do for an entire two-hour set like mm -hmm. Mad Dogs and Englishmen ended up to be. And Leon really saved the day. I think Joe's career would have been over had he yes. screwed that up at that point. That Leon came in and took everything over. No, Leon made it possible. Yeah. I think at that particular time, people were more open for something like that to happen. Mm. It was almost, if you really look at it, almost like a free-for-all that was sort of codified by one person, Leon Russell. And it managed with all of the other things in the music industry that was going on to fit. Well, I think that Leon's professionalism that we've kind of established, he came from the Wrecking Crew where it was like, okay, you're on the clock now. He had, he brought that kind of urgency to everything. We're not only going to do this, we're going to do it well, and we're going to do it within the time frame we're given. Frankly, if it wasn't for Bill Janovitz's book, I would have thought that Leon was as much as a fuck up <laughs> as Joe. Joe Cocker. I had none of the history that Bill's book and, and our interview, Teresa, right. gave us. So that, that was some very useful information that, because I grew up, I was maybe 15 when Mad Dogs and Englishmen came out. I was, it was just a, like I said, a free-for-all. It's very interesting to find out exactly how tight Leon Russell's reins were over the whole thing to actually make it happen. Oh, no, he was extraordinary. And remember, too, he recruited the shelter people, a lot of the Tulsa artists like Jim Keltner, best drummer, in my opinion, on the planet, and Carl Radel and Don Preston and uh, Jeff Blackwell, the second drummer. And so, I mean, they were tight with Leon and he was very comfortable with them. So that really helped him propel it to the next level in a very short period of time. And it's interesting to learn also that a young Bruce Springsteen saw Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and Englishman tour. And that's when he decided or he was inspired to put together his big band, E Street Band. So you can trace that lineage. You listen to Mad dogs and Englishmen and you start listening to East Street Shuffle and then of course Born to Run you say wow these guys that's where they got the idea from Joe Cocker because I think I think Springsteen was at the famous Fillmore shows that they take. It's amazing that one thing leads to another you look at Bobby Keys who's very close with Don Nix of mm. Memphis and then Don introducing Leon to George which started a concert for Bangladesh they recruited Claudia and, and, yeah. and the same shelter people Jim Keltner and on to superstardom even more so which John Lennon. I mean, it just goes yeah. on and on. Yeah, Leon really stole the show at Bangladesh. It was a thrill. Obviously, I, I was too, I was 11 when that happened. But sure, everybody was excited about Ringo and George, but they were pretty laid back. But Leon and Billy Preston, really, they were the yeah. stars of that show, I remember. And Mad Dogs and Englishmen, one of those rare live albums that people really listened to. Whereas like Bangladesh and, and some of the other albums of that era were more souvenirs. You actually sat and listened to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. And then, of course, and it, it was, still holds up. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Absolutely. It definitely holds up. The music is great. Yeah. Well, a lot of people know, uh, or at least of my generation knew, Joe Cocker from the John Belushi parody that he did on Saturday Night Live. And I happened to catch that tour 
I was 16, 17. I got to see him in the Calderon. You remember that dump out on Long Island with stuff. But I was fascinated to learn that Joe Cocker absolutely loved John Belushi's send-up of him. He was honored by it. People <laughs> thought he was going to be insulted by it. And well, first of all, Belushi just nailed yes. Joe Cochran and his spastic uh, sort of delivery. And I think it, to watch that on YouTube, he looks startled at first and then he's like, oh, okay, I guess I guess I have a mirror image right here. <laughs> and I was saying to the movie producer that I did the screenplay, she said, well, you've written too long a screenplay. I said, well, there's a lot of elements you want to put in this. She said, can't you get rid of that Saturday Night Live thing? I said, everybody I mentioned I'm doing a screenplay on Joe Cocker says to me, oh my God, did you see Belushi do him, you know, blah, 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 blah. You've got to have it. Everyone who goes to see a Joe Cocker movie is going to insist that be in there. How important that is. And think about more cowbell. I mean, another <laughs> defining moment in Saturday Night Live history. There aren't Absolutely. many of them. It was at the day. top of its ratings at that point. It was the yeah. most important show he could do. And he did something that people are still talking about today. <laughs> well, David, tell them about McKell's. What happened? You couldn't go to McKell's anymore. Well, I don't know if our listener knows about McKell's. McKell's... Did, you get, did you get 86 from McKell's? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I 86 McKell's, actually. <laughs> Seriously. What happened when I was a young, up-and-coming studio musician, I would go to McKell's every time stuff played there. It was, an, I really say it was one of the more important points in my development. I would sit, well, maybe two rows of tables back and just stare at the bass player, who's Gordon Edwards, a personal hero, and the keyboard player, Richard T, who unfortunately has passed a while ago. Then they did the Conquer Tour. Then they did the Conquer album. McKell's, which was a great place to listen to music, became this overstuffed, yuppie hang and I just refused to go there anymore. It, it was just, it became a media outpost. They'd have newspapers and hope, who's the next celebrity that's going to come? So uh, frankly, Joe Cocker ruined that club. <laughs> and probably vomited after being there. And then SNL ruined something else entirely. Well, and it was all also famous for Whitney Houston ever because yes. her mother, Sissy, was booked there. Oh, I used to see them there all the time. Oh, yeah. And that's one of the first places I saw Whitney. It was like, like, oh my God, that girl behind her, that's her daughter. And that, that was huge, Whitney right? Houston. That's, that's where I first met Whitney Houston. So I remember going to McHale's to see that. But you would go to McHale's, you're absolutely right, to see not only who would show up on stage, but who would show up in the audience. It could be anybody. It was like a who's who of the music business. Yeah. And it was just a, a soft-spoken club beforehand. Yeah. What was that, Teresa? Oh, like the Troubadour. Right. It was exactly. Yeah. One of the things also that's cool about the book, and I, again, I came to Joe Cocker around 76 when he did the Stingray record, which is my favorite Joe Cocker record. And I was shocked to feel here that Jerry Moss didn't like it. Thought it was a dud. Yeah, yeah. Didn't like a lot of the stuff he did in yeah. that era. And in fact, that led up to them allowing Michael Lang to talk him out of, let Joe go. I'm going to get him a different deal. You'll never recoup your money on yeah. what he's doing at the moment. They gave him every lifeline possible to try and resurrect his career. And I, I think it's fascinating that that's one of your favorite albums. Because some of them that are not commercial hits often have the things that resonate with us the best. 
Well, that's that's one of the things I really loved about this book because it made me go back and listen to Sheffield Steel, the Cocker album, Luxury You Can Afford. Those are fabulous records. Joe Cocker never fell off the map musically. He always made quality records. Now, again, it was the punk era. How could he compete with Captain Fantastic? How could he compete with the glam rockers, with the Van Halens of his generation? But he, Joe always made, like Leon, always made excellent records, whether or not the public heard them or not. That's true because I'm one of those people, as we've established, I'm like a, a vinyl and CD junkie. Me too, me too. So of course, yeah. the first thing I do when I do a book is like, I've got to have every piece of music they've ever made. <laughs> so, so I have them all. And he's on every label under the sun. He would like be signed to a label, screw up the deal. Uh, they drop him. Then he'd go on to another label, take another advance. It went on and on for decades. Nice work if you can get it. What were we going to say, Teresa? Exactly. Oh, I was just going to tell Mark that um, when you get here to Tulsa, uh, down the street from the church studios, and amazing vinyl record store called oh, Studio man. Records. It's actually one of our tenants. We're kind of in an area emerging as Studio Row. You're going to love this guy and his collection. So I cannot wait for you to see it. Oh, fantastic. Wow. Oh, we can't wait. We can't wait. <laughs> Another fascinating thing we learned about Joe, one of his latter day hits that put him back on the map up where we belong. He didn't like that song. No, he didn't. <laughs> and Chris Blackwell of Island Records, who had Joe for that one Sheffield Steel album, and a couple of singles hated that song just <laughs> hated it and it's the only number one hit that joe ever had in the yeah. internet well, no. you can also understand the longtime conquer fan not liking that song that was pat really it wasn't anything that i mean if, if joe was going into the studio to cut something that he was going to do that would never be on a record but exactly it was such a unique moment and he just i'm sure he just kind of walked well i know he did it in one day walked through it left the studio and, you know, whatever happens, happens. And it becomes this huge Grammy Award winning, Academy Award winning number one hit for him. I like that Bill Medley tune. What was that? Uh, I don't know. Da, 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 da. Oh, it was another I, movie I, I, I can't think of it. It's from uh, Dirty Dancing. Dancing. Dirty Dancing. It's the I'm same kind of life. Yeah. <laughs> David, I'm sure you have a cutoff Dirty Dancing the time, of our life, the time of my life. Yeah. Oh, I listen to that every day. <laughs> but you that know the, the captain and Tennille? <laughs> That's it. Show them your Low captains. Keep us together, I'm telling you. Yeah. But you know, you look at that record up where we belong and it's a, it's a, I would say, a gateway record because people of that generation probably loved the record and then went back and looked at some of his earlier records and got turned on to that. Same thing happened to me with Leon Russell. I I didn't come to Leon Russell to maybe 72, 73 when Carney came out because that was a hit on the AM radio. And I dug it. I bought the record and I said, hey, where did this guy come from? And then I go backwards and I run into Mad Dogs and Englishmen. I run into Bangladesh and all that. Same thing with Joe Cocker when he had You Are So Beautiful. That wasn't a very Joe Cocker song at all. Didn't make sense for him to record that. Oh, I'll disagree with you on that. That's yeah. so totally a Joe Cocker. You think so? Okay. Okay. And that to me is his best album. So you again, so. You're wrong. I'm wrong again. Well, that was <laughs> right. I can't stand a little rain. David rings the bell when I, I make mistakes. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how many Joe Cocker comeback albums there were. Here he was coming back in 1973. He wasn't gone. I mean, he was Mad Dogs and Englishman came out late 70, 71. So how can you how can you make a comeback record in 73? But that is a great record. That is that is a. It's like a, Rita's. What was the James Bond song? All Time High? All Time yeah, High. Yes. I mean, it was so good, but kind of cringes when you ask her about it. But uh, it, she did so well, and it, it introduced a whole new audience to uh, Rita and her history. 
Yeah, yeah, it does. Teresa, you know, if you think about it, the only James Bond recording that probably is a favorite of the artist would probably be Live and Let Die. Oh, yeah. Stands up. People criticized Joe because his records got a little bit slicker. They criticized Leon because his records got a little bit slicker. But the fact was, recording studio technology was improving. Could now have, instead of four tracks and eight tracks, you can have 24, 48 tracks. Then, of course, digital recording came in. So records sounded clearer. Players had to be more concise. Hence, Joe Cocker's records started sounding a little bit slicker. But he had Sly and Robbie. He had some great David Sanborn. I mean, he had the best of the best sidemen on his records. Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of those albums you find, I got Eric Clapton's on this song. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah. All these yeah. people drop in to, to hang out and make music with Joe throughout mm-hmm. his career. It's amazing to, to look at the, his whole body of work. It's so interesting. I didn't realize that he'd done Across the Universe that movie and is in yes. that movie as three <laughs> different characters, the bum, the street person. Yeah. The, the hippie and it's like typecasting another another decade you know and, and there's another joe conquer project that's high profile and again i saw joe in 76 and he was absolutely out of it i didn't take note i didn't realize he was going behind richard t to vomit i didn't <laughs> but people looked at him like a car wreck but he he put on a, one of the most memorable performances i'd ever seen and that was the snl weekend but had mark had you ever seen joe perform i saw him at the woodstock 25th Okay. In the 90s. That'd be 94. Right. And then I saw him in 2012. Okay. I saw him in 2012 with Huey Lewis mm. at Pine Knob in Detroit. Okay. And he was great. I was like, oh my God. He, he made it through the whole show. His voice was there. I didn't realize the whole backstory of right. his alcohol and, and everything else. And he dried out at that point. And he yeah. was great. He had all the feeling, all the songs, and all the control. Teresa, did you ever see Joe Cocker by any chance? I did. You missed him. Sadly. Missed him. Yeah, missed him. Well, well, Mark, you shouldn't have been so shocked. I mean, look at all the celebrities. I mean, you documented Hollywood pretty pretty deeply. So, I mean, where does on a debaucherous scale, where does Joe Cocker fall somewhere? On a scale from one to ten. I guess. I mean, the worst thing he ever did was to himself, you know? Right, right, okay. And that self-destructive... Uh, sort of spectrum. He would be a 10 in that that group, I think. Right. Did it longer. If he had the realm, he'd probably be a zero <laughs> of the fact that he was so self-destructive to himself. The, the Captain and Tennille are not even on this list. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we'll have and to bring... it was my first book, so I know them. <laughs> but, I, but I think the Baja Marimba Band were part of that, though. <laughs> I, I'm your, your first book was Captain this. and Tennille. Um, Is that true? Yes, that was my very first book, 1970. I landed my first two book contracts and it was, we want two books from you, The Captain and Tennille and Barry Manilow. Those were my first two books. I did two at once. Wow. wow. Fascinating characters, though, because Jarrell was a, was a session guy. Oh, he know? was. They were part of the Beach Boys Act for a right, while. Yeah, exactly. yeah. She was the only beach girl <laughs> in their act. Tony Tennille. They came from the studio like Glenn Cabell. They were all, you know, they were all pros. They weren't, you know, they may have they may have looked like, you know, pop pablum, as we say, on television, especially Captain and Tennille. But they were they were great players. And if you go back and listen to those records, man, great arrangements, great songwriting, great melodies. People can poke fun of them all they want. But if you remember a song after 50 years, it's got to be pretty good. Daryl's father was Carmen Dragon, who was the conductor for the Hollywood Bowl Symphony Orchestra. And you'll see him as credit on a lot of films from the Mm. 50s and 60s, Carmen Dragon. The captain with the goofy glasses and the hat and what have you, he came from a strong musical background. 
Yeah, they all were. And so. Tony Tennille, as long as we're on to the caption and Tennille, <laughs> her mother had a TV show and she and her two sisters grew up on that television show. Right. What was the name of the show? It was a local show. I want to say in Birmingham, Alabama, it was like a local morning show where she did arts and crafts and had local guests on and she'd have her three girls on it. Wow. It was wow. the national That's show. That's great. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, Mark, who who is this book for? Is this to turn a new generation on? Is it for geezers like David and myself who want to go behind the scenes? Who, who did you write this for? Who's the audience for this? Well, it's a little bit of both. I mm. swear half the people I mentioned this book to say to me, is he still alive? Mm. And that's kind of like he had fallen off the the general radar for so mm. long that a lot of people of our generation, like the real vinyl junkies, they don't really realize that he's gone. And then the whole new generation, they hear right. his songs in films and what mm. have you and don't know the backstory. So it's a little bit of every everything. I want people to salute his musicianship and sure. go back and discover some of this great music and read you know what he put himself through to do it. I, I always think it's fascinating to see what an artist goes through or puts themselves through. Yeah. He's kind of like the Vincent Van Gogh of rock and roll. It really is. You yeah. love Vincent Van Gogh's paintings, but would you really like him in your living room, you know, getting <laughs> drunk on absinthe and wrecking the place? So one of those two-edged swords. The same for you, Teresa. But what what about the young people that come into the church? What is their take on Leon? Are they are they discovering from the first time? Is it their parents or grandparents that said, hey, you got to check this stuff out? Yeah, I think it's, it, mm. again, it's a combination of both. We have a bronze statue of Leon that greets everyone. Yes. A lot of them are like, who's this funny guy with the hair and the top hat? And so we really celebrate that entrepreneurial spirit that Shelter Records really stood for. Mm-hmm. And he really was the musician's musician. I mean, it was, he was classically trained and it was just so talented. And you get young people come in. Of course, they're not going to be able to name one Leon Russell song, but get to talk about and celebrate what he accomplished, how he did it. A lot of disruption was going on in the music industry, just like today. So they yeah. can totally relate to that. Like, how do you monetize your art form? And and we can tell those stories with, yeah. you know, we can create a whole story from coming up with a song idea to the lyrics to bringing an orchestra or a composition to the order on the album to album cover art. And now how are you going to market it and deploy it into the marketplace? Right. And so everyone can relate to that. Young artists can relate to that. And I think people that are attending uh, this book signing are, you know, there'll be musicians, but just music super fans that will know a lot about Joe and you'll have some that just want to learn a little bit more. Now, of course, Joe and Leon aren't here, but we, David and I always ask our artists about the effects of streaming and AI. Now, being that Leon was on the cutting edge of technology, I, I think he would have had a ball with AI, but AI is also affecting journalism and how we, and streaming, of, of course, how we consume music, how we, we listen to music. Will there be Joe Cockers in the future with, with streaming and AI, or are we just going to keep replicating the past. What do you think, Mark? I don't know. I I think that anything, any new medium that keeps the music alive and uh, makes it accessible to new new audiences is wonderful. I've already established that I still go to the vinyl store, so maybe I live in the past, but I I, I think that that's the way it was recorded. That's the way it's meant to be heard. But I'm I'm happy that the music is still alive, and a very dear friend of mine, my publicist, David Salador in New York, says he hears a little help from my friends every day in, in New York on the radio, so 
the music is still alive there. And whatever whatever medium people are listening to Joe's music or Leon's music, I'm happy about. And then Teresa at the at the church audio engineering school. Obviously, AI is going to be uh, an important topic because that's going to be part of the lexicon. No, absolutely. Mm. And I think that if you can't beat them, join them, right? So <laughs> artists, you know, everything from assistance with melodies to song lyrics yeah. to um, developing their own marketing strategy. I mean, AI is being incorporated with all of the artists that we work with. And right. so we're all in on analog, which is more of a niche boutique market now. When you look at our console, our vintage right. mic section, it is a very unique unique audience that travels to Tulsa to record with us, but we embrace the latest greatest in digital. You know, there's a hybrid approach to, to this and artists are seeing it, but we love AI and I'm yeah. with um, Mark on that. Any medium or platform that we can get music out because we all know music is a universal language and, and that's what we need. And it's just how we bridge the gap between all segments of the population. Okay, great. Well, thanks for being on the show. So Mark, you're going to the church for your book signing. I am. All and right. I'm bringing Melanie with me. I love Melanie. Yeah, that was really nice. <laughs> Of her. <laughs> she's a doll i've known her for years yeah and of course she was at woodstock with yeah. joe yeah and uh so that you know it became like sort of this entree to like who am i going to get to write the intro woodstock melanie yes, <laughs> yes and she, I think she's, she said such insightful things you're gonna love her she's she really nailed it great so you, and make sure mark you get a picture next to the leon statue we have to see you absolutely <laughs> mark, you know it, it, it dawned on me that that melody song uh, teach the world to sing may yes. have been the first mass production advertisement for coca-cola mm. using rock music mm. that opened a whole nother door oh wow sync sync licensing <laughs> you got it we'll have to ask <laughs> melanie and, and mark what's the who's the next book What's the next book? I'm not sure. I'm, I've got a couple of, of candidates, but I won't announce it yet. All right. Okay. So we'll have Let to let us know. I'm, I'm still tweaking the Joe Cocker screenplay. No <laughs> oh, more vomiting. A... No more vomiting, please. All right. Well, <laughs> you know, I put my uh, hat in the ring there to be Joe Cocker. All right, Mark, <laughs> Teresa, thanks for being on the show. Teresa, David and I will definitely get down to the church. We have yes, to. Yes, have... have We've to. been thinking about it. Yes. Yeah. We. I do this baseball uh, bucket list trip where we go and bucket no no pun intended to mark where we got all the major league baseball stadiums but we've seen them all so i'm like well let's go see minor league baseball in tulsa absolutely we have a great team the tulsa drillers and i think they're part of the dodgers right they're dodgers right the minor league yes Absolutely. It's a beautiful and it's not too far away. And the late, great Roy Clark actually brought the drillers um, in 1977 to Tulsa. So it has a a musical tie and we love to celebrate Roy here as well, who I call Tulsa's home for almost 50 years. So Wow. Wow. Okay, so we'll we'll get drilled, David. We'll go to Tulsa anyway. All right. Thanks for having us on the show. We will send you guys links and we'll get this on, obviously, before the book signing so we can get Mark Bago yet another bestseller. David, how's this guy? There you go. Please, oh please. Yeah. Boy, oh boy. Thanks, brag, guys. brag, brag. All right. Yeah. See you again on your next books. Good to okay. see you. Bye bye. David, thus concludes another fantastic interview. Thank you, Mark Bego. Thank you, Teresa Knox. The new book is called Joe Cocker with a lot of help from his friends. It is out November 16, 2023. Mark Bego is doing a book signing on Saturday, November 11, between 10 
a.m. and 4 p.m. at the church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Go to the website, thechurchstudio.com, to find out more detail. And David, what a great set list we're going to have. What a great playlist. Uh, we're going to play Joe Cocker. We're going to play some Leon Russell. And we're going to play some deep tracks from their influences and from their colleagues. That's correct. It's going to be a wonderful grouping of tunes. I hope our listener likes it. Where will they be able to hear this? Well, David, they can hear it on our podcast, which has a playlist adjunct to it. And that is available on Apple, Amazon, Buzzsprout, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are potted. So thanks for another great episode. You are David C. Gross. I am Tom Simioli. See you again next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>